All right, let's take our Bibles this morning, printed or electronic, and be finding the book of Acts in the 10th chapter this morning. I'm fired up about this message today, and I hope you're ready. If you're ready to hear it, just say, preach on this morning. All right, that's what we're getting ready to do, so lock and load. This was the, I was preparing over this week, and as of Friday, on paper anyway, this was the longest message I'd ever written on paper. And you'll be good to know that I'm uh, more gifted at editing than I am in writing. And so we've gotten it down to where it's not a two and a half hour message today, but I'm telling you so much. This is the longest story in the book of Acts that we're getting ready to go into today. It's so long that those who put chapter and verse divisions in our Bible uh, decided to uh, take it over two chapters. It's Acts chapters 10 and 11. And today, for the next few minutes, I'd like to take these minutes and speak to you on this subject. When a second conversion is necessary. Now, when I say that, I want to be very clear, and I think it behooves me to tell you what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the necessity of being saved a second or third or fourth or fifth time. Though I've known people through the years that when you would ask them, hey, tell me, are you saved? They would say, which time? They've been baptized three or four times. No, we believe at Hillcrest that the gift of eternal life is exactly that, eternal, which means it doesn't have any ending. Once the gift of eternal life is received by faith in Jesus Christ alone, it is the gift of God that is possessed forever. And you can never again become lost. So when I say that sometimes a need for a second conversion is necessary, I'm not talking about the need to be born again again, to be saved a second time. I believe that what that does mean is that in order to be effective in our witness to Jesus Christ as born-again believers, there are times when we ourselves as followers of Jesus need to be converted in our minds and hearts of some really bad thinking, some things and some tendencies that are not pleasing to God, particularly when it involves our attitudes and our dispositions toward other people, people who aren't like us. Now, you look around this room today, you'll find all kinds of people. First thing that you'll notice is there's a striking similarity to everybody that's in here. We all walk homo erectus on two feet. We all have typically hands and arms and legs, heads that rest on torsos, right? So we're all very similar. But you look around the room and you'll also see a myriad of differences, differences in shapes and sizes and skin tones and colors, differences in sexes and differences in age. And when those differences become something that forms bias or prejudice within us, there are times in life when a second conversion for the people of God becomes absolutely necessary. People don't always act like us. They don't always believe like us. They don't always worship like us. And what a timely subject in light of all the obvious racial and religious hatred that is currently being expressed in our world today. I was in Nashville last week at uh, my niece's wedding, my daughter's brother, which I was performing. And over the weekend as we were driving up, my brother's a state, major state law enforcement official, and we were driving up, we heard they were going to have a 
an alt-right rally in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and immediately I thought on his, on his daughter's weekend. And what a distraction that's going to be. It ended up not being that big of a deal, but the fact that these things are in our face now all the time reminds us of the importance of learning to see others as the people that God has created them to be. Every man, woman, child born on planet Earth is created in the image of God. Isn't that right? And God loves every single one of them. And if God loves them, then the people of God are bound to love them as well. And that's what lies at the heart of one of the most important stories in the Bible here in Acts 10 and 11. The story principally deals with two people. One of them, a Roman Gentile named Cornelius, and the second, an Orthodox Jew whose name was Peter. Two guys that couldn't have been more unalike. One of these two is spiritually lost, and he needs to be born again. He needs to be converted to faith in Jesus Christ. The other is spiritually born again. In fact, he's a Christian evangelist. But he needs to be converted of his racial, uh, racial prejudice. And he is biased toward many people who are walking around at that time on planet Earth. So as much as this passage has to do with the salvation and conversion of Cornelius to Jesus, it's just as much about the conversion of Peter to God's point of view about people like Cornelius. Does that make sense this morning? Amen? So let's focus today, we're going to take this over a couple of Sundays because there's just too much in it. Let's focus today on the second conversion of Peter. And let's focus on what he learned about the gospel and what we need to know about the gospel Today, there are two things that I want us to draw out from this passage. The first being this, that the gospel is radically inclusive by nature. We have a gospel, a saving gospel that revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ and that saving gospel and the Savior who stands at the heart of that saving gospel is a radically inclusive Savior and a radically inclusive gospel. Let's begin our reading with the first verse of Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and then the instruction down in verse 5, send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, another Simon, who is a tanner, a worker of leather goods, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, let's stop there for a minute because this is a really important account. It teaches us the critical nature of the love of God for all people, again, the radically inclusive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we begin this morning, the main thing that you need to know about this guy we're introduced to named Cornelius, and we'll have more to say about him next week because he needs to be saved. But the main thing you need to notice about him today is that he's a Gentile. Write that down. <clears throat> That's very important. He is a non-Jew through and 
through. Now, remember up to this point in our study of the book of Acts, we've seen how the gospel has kind of progressively spread from Jerusalem outward. Jesus has ascended into heaven and he gave his 120 disciples, after all those teeming crowds in his earthly ministry, at the time of his ascension, he's got 120 that are fully devoted to him, and he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my what? Witnesses where? First to Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, right? And so the gospel begins with that earliest 120 disciples, all of them Jewish, and they're ministering principally to Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And all these Jews come flocking to Jesus over weeks and months to the point where by the time Stephen dies, maybe 18, 20,000 converted Jews to Jesus Christ there in Jerusalem. So it's a really big church that has developed really quickly. Then there's persecution. And many of the Jews have to scatter outside of Jerusalem and they take the gospel as Jesus commanded them to do to the outlying regions of Judea and Samaria. Philip, one of the early deacons, goes to the region of Samaria, hated place because they were kind of half-breeds, half-Jewish blood, half-Gentile blood. But Philip loves them and he goes up there a preaching machine that he is, and he preaches the gospel to them, and revival breaks out among the Samaritans, so much so that the apostles have to send emissaries up there because they have trouble believing it. One of those two emissaries was Peter along with John, and Peter gets to witness the Holy Spirit baptize those who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he became absolutely convinced that these Samaritans had become fully included among the people of God. But most Jews had real problems with that because they'd been taught from early on not to have anything to do with Samaritans. They were unclean. They taught a compromised Bible. They worshiped differently and in a different place. But some were learning to accept this, particularly the apostles, because two of them had seen it with their own eyes. But Gentiles were a different class altogether. And I'm sure many of those Jews had argued, well, at least those Samaritans have got some Jewish blood flowing through them, right? And at least those Samaritans have some semblance of Jewish scripture. They basically adhered to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So they've got at least some redemptive qualities about them. But man, Gentiles were totally different. Gentiles worshiped idols. They didn't worship the God of the Jews generally. Gentiles ate weird food from the perspective of the Jews, and they did whatever they wanted to with their bodies. They were hedonistic to the core, and Jews were taught early on, you don't have anything to do with Gentiles. They are not the people of God and never will be. Now, all of that was developed in the early stages of the Old Testament, right? Because as God was calling out a people, developing them as the people of Israel, a people special and holy unto himself, That's basically what he told them. I'm going to take you into the land of promise that I am making yours by divine fiat. And when you go in there, it's full of what? Gentiles. And here's the thing. You can't have anything to do with them because you still don't know what it means to be the people of God. I'm creating you to be distinct and to be separate. If you rub shoulders with them, they'll rub off on you faster than you can rub off on them. So drive them out, drive them out, drive them out. Have nothing to do with them. Don't commingle with them. Don't intermarry with them and settle the land. And so this kind of, but that was not God's long-term perspective. God had, had chosen Israel fundamentally to be proclaimers of gospel light. 
The Bible says that even in the Old Testament, you will be a light unto the Gentiles. They never got that. Even to the time of the New Testament, to the time of Christ, centuries and centuries later, they had simply focused on their status, their privileged status as the chosen people of God. And they never got the evangelistic part. They never got the shine the light part on the rest of the world. And the end result, centuries of separation, centuries of mistrust, centuries of racial hatred and personal prejudice. And then out of nowhere, in this new stage of the development of the people of God called the church, in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, God begins to impact his born-again people with this same concept, only much stronger. And he begins with a Gentile whose name was Cornelius, Cornelius. And then once again, we're reminded here in Acts, haven't we seen this before, people? With the Samaritans and with the Ethiopian eunuch, do you see all the cross-culturalism that's taking place in the initial phases of the spread of the gospel? And it's all one reminder after another in the kingdom of God in light of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he came to do. Racial segregation, racial bias, racial, racial prejudice will not stand in the kingdom of God. And this is, again, hit home in its most direct way with God's vision to a full Gentile named Cornelius. The Bible makes it very clear, 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also what? Say it out loud. Love one another. That's right. And that's the picture that we're getting at here. Now, when we are first introduced to Cornelius, and again, I'll have more to say about him next Sunday, his is actually a pretty good picture because he's what's become known over time as a God-fearer. He's been around the Jewish people for a while. He's, he's become respectful of their devotion in a polytheistic culture where Gentiles worshiped hundreds and hundreds of different gods. Their worship of one God was appealing to him. Their form of worship, their approach to worship, their emphasis on prayer, all of that rubbed off on Cornelius, and he feared and respected the God of the Jews. And so in that sense, he's not the typical Gentile. And God shows up to him one day, unannounced in an angelic vision, and gives him some instructions. And through the instructions that the angel gives him, one thing that becomes clear with respect to Cornelius, once again, as we've seen many times in the Bible, is even though this is a religious man, a religious Gentile, his religion is not good enough to curry favor with God. There's something missing from his life. He's another in a long list of men in the Bible who are what? Religious, but what? Lost. Men like Nicodemus, people like the Pharisees, people like the Ethiopian eunuch. We see them literally all over the Bible. They've got a form of religion, and maybe they think that's all that they need in order to get God to like and accept them, but it is not true. He may have been a good man, but he was not good enough to earn the free gift of eternal life. Something was missing, and what was missing was absolutely essential. What was missing for Cornelius was the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was something he needed to hear. And what he needed to hear was that his only hope was found in the name of Jesus Christ, not in Jewish religious observance. He needed to know Jesus. 
He needed to be exposed to Jesus. He needed to hear the name of Jesus because there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be what? Saved. Notice Romans 10. I don't think it's in your notes, but listen to Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. So there is an ascent. You've got to know the Lord. That's a reference to Jesus. And then you have to call on his name to be saved. Well, Cornelius didn't know that. Paul goes on in Romans 10, 14. And how will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching to them? And that's what was missing. You know what Cornelius needed? He needed the gospel. And in order to receive the gospel, he needed a witness. He needed a preacher, somebody that opened up their mouth and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, which alone can save. That's what's missing here. He needs somebody to tell him about Jesus. The angel didn't do it. Even though the angel could have done it, the angel didn't do it. Because that's principally not the angelic role. That's your role. Let me say that again. That's your role. That's my role. You say, well, I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are if you know Jesus. The word preach just means to testify or to open up your mouth and proclaim. And that's what every Christian is called to do. We all have a story to tell. We all have an experience if we've been genuinely born again. And our responsibility, this is what God's left us here to do. Otherwise, why didn't he just save you and take you straight to heaven? He didn't do that. He leaves us here on purpose. Why? Because we're light bearers. We're salt, we're light, we're to make a difference, we're to push back the darkness, we're to retard rot and to retard decay. That's what Christians who are born again are supposed to do. And that's what was missing from Cornelius' life. And the grace of God shows up and says, here's the deal, you need a gospel preacher, and I know that there's one in the vicinity about 30 miles south of here in Joppa, and that's who I want you to go after. There's a Simon there, he's staying with a house named Simon. You wanna make sure you get them properly differentiated because if you get the Tanner Simon coming up here, He's going to teach you how to make a tent, and that's not what you need. You need the other one, Simon called Peter, and he'll have something that's life-changing that he needs to communicate with you. And what Cornelius does not know at this point is that God's working almost at the same time to accomplish a conversion of another kind and another man down in Joppa. He's trying to convert Cornelius to faith and practically at the same time, he's trying to convert Peter from his racial prejudice in order to get him inside the house of a Gentile man who is a Roman centurion. I cannot express how big a deal that would have been to an Orthodox Jew. So God's gonna show up And in a spiritual kind of way, strong-arm Peter in a way that he cannot mistake or in any way misunderstand. And so here's the vision to Peter, beginning in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry, obviously a Southern Baptist. Somebody say amen. (laughs) And he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. 
And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners on the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times for emphasis, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, what you see here is Peter being a good Jew in one sense. I think God's been working on Peter. He did it, I think, through the Samaritan mission, and I think that helped soften his heart a little bit against people that he'd been trained his whole life not to really like or have anything to do with. He's in Joppa, seaside town there, staying in the home of another Jew, but of a Jew that perpetually stayed in a condition of uncleanness because he worked with dead animal carcasses. And so good Orthodox Jews wouldn't have even looked highly on Simon the Tanner just because of what he, he was a Jew, but he had issues all the time because of what he did for a living. And yet Peter's staying in his house of all the people that he could have been staying there. So I don't think there's any question that God has been doing a work in Peter's heart, but never anything quite like this. He's gone up to Simon's rooftop where he'd had a lovely village. It's the, the, the home is on the seaside, which would have helped with the smell, right? And he's up there, he's hungry, and he's looking out over the water, probably seeing all kinds of boats with sails, right? That would have been what would have been happening there in that maritime community, fishing village, right? And while he's seeing these boats, all of them with billowing sails, he sees something that looks like that coming straight out of heaven. It would have been very fitting there for the context. The Bible calls it a great sheet. It's the same word for canvas sail. And so it was either a white sheet or a white sail of some kind. And the thing comes down and it's full of all kinds of different animals, most of them unclean to a Jew. There's all kinds of fowl in there that a Jew by law couldn't eat. There are reptiles in there, creepy crawly things that, you know, most of us would not touch. And there's probably a hog in there too, which would have knocked him off his chair. No question about it. And it's not so much the container that's important as it is the stuff that's in the container. And it's not so much the vision that's even important as it is the voice behind the vision. Because he sees these things, and that would have been one thing, but then he hears this voice, and what does the voice say? Arise, and what's the next word? Kill and eat. Now, I don't care if you're a vegetarian. You want to be a vegetarian, go on with your dull life. I don't care. Just don't ever come to me and say, you get that out of the Bible. Because the word kill here is very, and Jesus ate the Passover lamb. That's all I'm going to say about any of that. But he wants him to kill and eat. And man, this is a shocking revelation to Peter. I mean, I've traveled to many parts of the world, and I've seen things cooked and had things offered to me. And you know what my response, I ain't eating that. And that's probably the way he responded. Well, it was the way he responded, with an emphatic negative. And so in one sense, this, this is a vision, and it is about food. And the reason that it is about food is because for the church in these days to fulfill the mission that God had called them, they had to take it to the ends of the earth. 
You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Gentiles. Those are the only people that are left. And so to take the gospel to Gentiles, when we take the gospel to people, we have to be willing to fellowship with people. And fellowshipping with people typically means being willing to eat with people because that's how the majority of our fellowship takes place. You have to be able to go inside people's homes to take the gospel to the end of the earth. You have to be able to eat with people to capture their attention and to engage with them and for them to accept you as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everybody tracking with me? And that's why this is about food in one sense because food connects people together. It's one of those things that we have in common and these Jews needed to be able to go inside the home of Gentiles and eat some shrimp and grits if it's put in front of them or whatever the case might be. But not only is it about food, it's about way more than food because this is about clean and unclean people as well. And the purpose and the plan of God for the gospel to multiply beyond Jerusalem. So not only does God declare all foods clean with this vision, and by the way, Jesus had already done that in his gospel ministry, Mark chapter 7. When he's engaging with the Pharisees about all their traditions, about how they washed up and about how those traditions had become uh, idols to them. And then Mark parenthetically says, Jesus declares all foods clean when he says it's not what goes inside of a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man, what comes from the heart, right? So Jesus abrogated the food laws back, but evidently that went right over Peter's head. And then God shows up to Peter and says, not only are all food clean, but all people are clean as well. In the sense that all people are worthy to hear the message of the gospel that they might be saved. The Bible says in Romans 2 and verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Did y'all get that? Say that together with me. There is no partiality with God. That word means favoritism. God's love is equal and across the board for every person created in his image in the world. Let me make a statement here this morning. God does not love Americans more than he loves Russians. God doesn't love Russians more than he loves ethnic Chinese. Can I say this morning, God does not love Republicans more than he loves Democrats. Sometimes I'm amazed that God loves either one of them. But he doesn't love one more than the other. He doesn't love men more than he loves women. He doesn't love adults more than he loves children. God does not love white people more than he loves black people. He doesn't love black people more than he loves Latinos. He doesn't love Latinos more than he loves Asians. The Apostle Paul says, 1 Timothy 2 and 4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In fact, let me say this. Did you know that if you're a white Christian in America, you have more in common with a black Christian from Kenya than you do a lost white person in America. If you're a white Christian in America, you have more in common with a born again Chinese in Beijing than you do a lost white person in America. Man, our identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and the Bible says, That in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all what? 
one in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel of God, see, the thing about it is if there's no partiality with God, and there's not, there ought to be no partiality among the people of God who bear the gospel because the gospel of God is a radically inclusive gospel, and we do well never to forget that. Now, second thing worth noticing, and with this we have to land the plane this morning, and that is the gospel not only is radically inclusive, but the gospel demands a radical obedience. See, it's one thing for me to say that, but we got to be willing to live like that. we got to be okay with this church looking multicultural across the board. And every church has to be okay with that. Because our gospel, the gospel of God, is a radically inclusive gospel that demands radical obedience to the gospel. And what's important is that once Peter hears this revelation, what you and I want to know is what's he going to do with it? Because not everything, let me let you in on a little secret. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Not everything God asks you to do is going to be easy. In fact, much of the time, God's going to ask you to do things that are really hard. Really hard. In fact, let's just admit it. Can we just say following Jesus is hard? In a compromised world, that's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. If it were easy, you wouldn't need Jesus to do it. No, it's hard to follow Jesus. It's demanding to follow Jesus. Discipleship is hard. Loving your enemies is hard. Working through tough marriage issues is hard. Learning to be a generous giver in a stingy world is hard. And this command to kill and eat things that Peter thought were nasty is hard. And we know that because he first he tells God, I ain't eating that. By no means, Lord. Some of your translations will say, not so, Lord. Can I make another statement this morning? You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. Not so, Lord. One just cancels the other out, doesn't it? If, listen, if you look at Jesus Christ and say, no, Lord, let me just let you in on a little surprise. He ain't Lord. If he's the Lord of your life, there's only one response, and it is, yes, Lord. Which, incidentally, is the way the pagan Gentile responded to the voice of God. You don't see Cornelius arguing with the Lord. He's just infantile enough to know this is unbelievable. I've got a messenger from heaven talking. We better do what he's doing. And here's the great evangelist, Peter, who's walked with the Lord for three-plus years, and he's still telling the Lord no. Wasn't the first time that he'd done that. Isn't that right? He rebuked Jesus on more than one occasion, telling Jesus basically, you're nuts for saying what you're saying, and you're scaring the guys. So stop it, Lord. And we're typically prone to do the same thing, but you can't do that. He said no because it wasn't right to him. It, it was, this is too hard. I mean, I'm trying to get there, Lord. The Samaritan thing was one thing, but now what you're asking me to do is going to create conflict in my life because I know a lot of Jews. And so he's processing through this hard command. But here's the thing we learn about the gospel. The gospel demands radical surrender to Jesus, and a radical surrender to Jesus always means a radical obedience to Jesus. Where the only, and listen, I mean the only right response to Jesus as Lord is yes, Lord. When he speaks, it's yes. 
And it doesn't matter what that is. Whether God's telling you you need to serve in preschool with a volunteer in the preschool ministry or teach a third grade boys class. I know for some of you, God would have to call on the telephone to get you to do that. (laughs) Or whatever the case might be. Maybe God's leading you to help start an adult small group or to get in on a short-term mission trip, to get out of your comfort zone and go to the Middle East with us when we go or go to Spain with us when we go or go somewhere in the world that you've never been to do mission work in Haiti or wherever. Or maybe God's calling you to leave and to move to one of those places. Or maybe just walk across the street to show love and to share the good news with a neighbor who's going through a tough time. Yes, Lord, is the only right response for a disciple of Jesus Christ. And at some point, the reality of what God wants him to do begins to sink in with Peter. And who knows how it started, but he's changing. And whatever happened... We see God at work in Peter's heart, and what follows helps us to understand that. Let's read this, and we're about done. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, he still doesn't know anything about Cornelius fully. Behold, all he knows is that men are coming. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. That's a good sign. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what he has to say or to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him now that's important for two critical reasons the first is that we see Peter softening and that he invites these Gentile emissaries to come into the house big deal and to spend the night and wasn't even his house by the way and he invites them in he's probably remembering that time those four strangers sawed a hole in his roof to let that guy down to be healed by Jesus they didn't ask me and I'm not asking the owner of this house either just come in you can spend the night That was a big deal, extreme hospitality. And I find it very interesting that when Peter, later on in his life, writes correspondence like we have in our Bibles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, he makes wonderful statements about this kind of thing. He says, for example, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, honor, honor, honor. The word honor is used six times in 1 Peter alone. And I think this is where he learned that concept, to honor everybody as valuable people that God has made in the image of God. And the first sign of that is he invites these Gentile, unclean emissaries into the house where he's staying. And then secondly, when morning comes the next day, he gets up and he what? He goes with them. Now we see an obedient Peter. And where does he go? He goes to find this Gentile who is a Roman soldier living in Caesarea. They call it, when you go over there, they pronounce it Caesarea. 
because it's named after Caesar Augustus, which points to its Gentile nature. It's the capital of the Roman province of Palestine, Gentile through and through. So he goes to a Gentile place accompanied by Gentile people to preach the gospel to a Gentile soldier to share his faith that he might be born again. That's how we know that God's given that man a changed heart. A second conversion was necessary, and we see it happen right before our eyes. Peter has a brand new way of looking at those who were different from him. So have you got it? The gospel demands radical obedience because the gospel is radically inclusive. What God has called clean, namely all people, we must never call common. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also love one another. What wrong attitude does God need to change in your heart starting today? This is God's word, and all God's people said, amen. Let's bow our heads.